So this morning we're going to continue in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to continue in the Beatitudes. Last week we took a little detour. As you notice, there's a stack of books up here. And if you ask my wife, there is always a stack of books around. And (laughs) this is just a small uh, sample of of what I'm bringing this morning. But I like the effect of opening up books. Um, We can pull quotes and we can Google things. But there's something intentional about taking time in study taking time in thoughtful contemplation. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 5. You can turn there. We're going to get started in just a moment. And as we continue through the Beatitudes, uh, we see that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking Old Testament truths. He's showing how they're fulfilled in him. He's summarizing the, the, the thoughts of the Jews at times. But he's also showing us what the new fulfillment in him will be. And these these new realities are inward, heart-transforming realities that don't show up on aptitude tests. They don't show up on, on personality tests, but they are the fruit and the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, the last four that we covered, uh, the, the negative Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the uh, meeking, those who are hungering and, and thirstings, they set the, um, they set the tone for the positive Beatitudes. So the first four apply to the individual. It's something that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. It's an inward quality. Blessed are those who mourn. It's something internal. The next four that we'll study today address others. How those inward realities uh, transform us to respond to others. And so we're transitioning from the negative into the positive as we get into verse 7 this morning. And only then, when we understand the dependence on the negative, that you must be poor in spirit to see the kingdom of heaven, you must know your poverty before God, you must mourn at your own sin. And that mourning at our own sin humbles us before our God and encourages us to seek after righteousness. That pattern, those negative beatitudes, only then can help us to understand the positive. We can understand how we can be merciful, what purity of heart looks like, to be peaceable and to face persecution. Let's read, let's, uh, let's read through our text and then we'll, we'll get started. Actually, let's uh, pray first. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we cannot pray enough. We cannot seek the discernment of your spirit enough. Because when you came to earth and you spoke to us, these are the words that you chose. There are things you wanted us to know. There are things that are true for eternity because they are rooted in you. And this morning they would come alive to us. That these Passages that sometimes we're so familiar with, we just tend to gloss over. That they would jump off of the page, that they would convict our hearts, that they would fill us with joy at what you've done in us and what you do through us. Lord, I pray that this morning would bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read in Matthew 5, starting in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Uh, Today being 9-11 is appropriate. It's an appropriate contradiction to this passage. The followers of Christ are to be merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and to endure persecution. We don't have a gospel of violence. We have a gospel of peace. We're not a religion that calls for indiscriminate murder. Our God is not so weak that we have to avenge him with blood on our own hands. Our God can avenge himself. And our God says to leave vengeance up to him. So when we see murder and we see acts of terror and indiscriminate uh, lack of value for human life, we see value in human life because they're made in the image of God. We don't have to respond in violence and in hatred and in murder because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We are to be his ambassadors of mercy, of purity, of peace. And persecution will come. And that passage this morning will help us to look at who we disagree with and how we disagree with them and how we respond to that. Because we as Christians don't respond to our disagreements by throwing rocks and throwing bombs. We respond to those we disagree with by responding with the most powerful thing we ever can, and that's the Word of God. There's no greater power. Rocket launchers have nothing on the power of the Holy Spirit. Missiles have nothing on the power of the Word of God. And as we are ambassadors, we are rooted in that word of God, regardless of what the world throws against us. So it is proper to mourn tragedies. It is proper to remember evil in the world. But it is more important to remember the one who overcame evil and to whose example we carry the banner that we wear as followers of Christ. So as we see in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. We can be merciful because we have received mercy first. And because of Christ, we are objects of mercy. We receive mercy when we deserve death. It's not an easy thing to think of. We'd like to pat ourselves on the back, think that I'm merciful and I'm kind to others because I've got this great heart. No, you received mercy when you deserved death. The father of mercy sent his son for us and gave us grace, this undeserved favor that was not our own. So how much more should we bear with the sins of others? How much more should we show mercy when we've been shown greater mercy than we're ever asked to show? You know, we want to exact justice now. We want things tied up. We want everything to make sense right now. So 
It's not easy being merciful when you want justice now. But our justice is not in this life. The judge, though who is the just and the justifier, will, will come one day and justice will be done to sin. But if justice was done to sin, we would never receive mercy in the first place. And so when we have a hard time showing patience for others and empathy for others because we want them to look and act and sound the way we do, we have to remember what we've been shown. And many times we are like the unforgiving servant that Jesus told us about in Matthew 18. And it's probably one of his most memorable parables where this servant who owes and we don't understand the financial terms of Jesus' day, but the servant in Matthew 18 owed more than he could ever repay in his lifetime. And the master says to him, you owe this because you can't pay it. I'm going to sell your family into slavery. And the servant falls on his knees and begs his master for forgiveness. Take it easy on me. I will do what I can to pay it back. And the master, having compassion on the servant, forgives the debt. And this servant who has this new lease on life, what does he do? Does he go out and run and, and jump and exclaim for joy what I've been forgiven? No. He finds those who owe him money. He grabs them by the neck and shakes them. Pay me now. Pay me what you owe me. No, I was just forgiven what I couldn't pay. And the other servants of the master see this response. And they tell the good master, your servant that you just forgave, he is trying to extort and exact every dime out of everyone else after he's been forgiven much. And the master, being the good master that he is, says that now that you are not showing the kindness to others, the mercy to others that I show to you, you will pay back every cent. And you will sit and rot in jail until you do. Many times we look more like that unforgiving servant than we do the gracious master who is willing to forgive a large debt. How hard is it for us to forgive small debts when our debt is so great? One of those books that I read this week, um, A.W. Pink has a great little book, The Beatitudes in the Lord's Prayer. Um, I could just preach his chapter and be done uh, every week. But I love his response to the mercy that is in the follower of Christ. He says, The more I ponder God's sovereign mercy toward me, the more I shall think of the unquenchable fire from which I have been delivered through the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. The more conscious I am of my indebtedness to divine grace, the more merciful I shall act toward those who wrong, injure, and hate me. Amen. Because in us, mercy sprouts forth from mercy. Like in a seed, when, it, when the first green shoot comes up, it is watered from the heavens and sunlight brings growth. God brings the growth of mercy. He brings the increase in our lives. And as we bear fruit and as we grow, one day those same seeds will come out of that same plant. And we show the mercy that has been Porn into us. 
we are in this wonderful process of mercy begets mercy begets mercy. And then you ask, well, is this kind of is this a chicken and the egg situation? Like which one comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the mercy that we show others to appease God, or is it the mercy that God shows us first? I want you to know there's a simple answer to this, because in God's kingdom, the chicken always comes first. God creates in fullness. God creates in perfection. There is nothing needed in God's creation. So when God exacts mercy on us, it is a fullness of mercy. Mercy so full that it begets mercy. A chicken that bears eggs, so to speak. A plant that produces the same seeds that it grows out of. Because God is the creator and the originator of all things, especially all good things like mercy and like love that we love because he first loved us and we show mercy because he showed mercy to us. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This word steadfast love is a synonym for mercy. It is continual love. It is love in the presence of sin and disappointment. It is mercy, for I desire steadfast love. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus specifically quoted this verse in uh, Matthew 12 when he's talking about the temple system, that something greater than the temple has come, and it is I. But I require mercy and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Offerings and sacrifices were for people who needed to atone for each and every sin. But people who have received blanket atonement for every sin have no need for a temple. They have a need for a savior. And in that savior, where they receive mercy, they can show steadfast love. They can focus on knowledge of God and not burn offerings. It's not what I bring to God. It's who God is in resting and loving him for who he is. And the mercy we understand is shown to us. Brings this knowledge of pureness of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word purity in scripture is synonymous with cleanliness. It is a cleansing. It's taking out the impurities, turning the evil to good. And the concept of heart in the Hebrew mind in the biblical scriptures is the entire person. Heart, soul, mind, strength, complete transformation, a singular untainted focus. Nothing gets in the way. Our focus and our hearts are pure in Christ because Christ is pure. I know it sounds like some kind of fairy tale wish requirement. Unless you are pure of heart, you will not see God. Um, but there is this beautiful fairy tale quality in that. And that purity, cleanliness comes from Christ and allows us to see God. This is an internal reality, like we mentioned, that transforms our outward reality. And it's not an outward facade of false purity like the Pharisees or false purity like the man who cuts his grass, paints his house, waxes his car so that everyone sees how well he has it together. 
but inside has no patience for his wife, spends no time with his children, doesn't exalt the Lord. It's this outward cleanliness and inward darkness. Or the woman spends hours and hours on her appearance, wanting to look good for everyone, neglecting her inward purity, neglecting coming before the Lord, only being concerned with the outward. The purity of heart is not anything, again, we can measure on the outside. But it is a a result of the work of the Holy Spirit inside. 1 Samuel 16 tells us that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So when Jesus addressed that same temple system, he addressed it as something incomplete. And what is better and complete is in him. Because the temple system would atone for one sin. But Jesus offers a full heart change, not temporary atonement, not singular atonement, but complete atonement. Because his greatest commandment, which we all should know, is love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your, come on, soul, all of your, and all of your, completely, complete heart, complete body, mind, soul, strength. And how is that accomplished? If you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. How do we get to this purity of heart? How is this accomplished? This is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Because it's this great window into what God is about to do. And he speaks through his prophets to give this, this great declaration of the work of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 25. Still hear pages turning, I'll give you a second. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. That's 24, we'll use that too. 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be very careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all of your uncleanliness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. So this is a first person address. This is God speaking. Notice something in this passage. Notice who's driving this. Notice who's promising it, who's accomplishing it, and who's sustaining it. I, 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 I. God. By the power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit draws, cleanses, sustains, perfects. You want to know why we can have confidence in the gospel? You don't want to know why we can have confidence in the transformation that we receive? Because God promised it. 
Because God initiated it. God fulfills it. We see a parallel in, in, in Romans 8. Those who I foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Our God is active in our lives. Our God is the one promising and completing this. This is not some human achievement. This is not purity of heart that we can work toward. This is the greatest gift we will ever get. Because we get a heart, we take a heart of stone. God takes a heart of stone. Stone does not breathe, it does not think, does not feel. A stone offers nothing to no one. It gives us a heart of flesh, beating, breathing, feeling, flowing with living water inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. If our gospel is any smaller than that, we are not doing the gospel justice. We are not doing our God justice. And just like Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. This transition from stone to flesh. You must be born again. And he tells Nicodemus something very specific. If you are born again, you will get to see the kingdom of God. Jesus says this again here, that the pure of heart, they shall see God. Yes, we will see God in an eternal sense. This pure heart that justifies you to come before a pure and perfect loving God. And in an eternal sense, we will come before his throne and whichever way we can see him, we will see him. But also our eyes are opened up. The veil is removed and we get to see him every day. We see him when the sun rises. We see him when the birds chirp. We see him in the amazing way that the human body is woven and knit together. When we see mountains, we see God. I'm glad Bubba's here this morning because I'm going to use him as a great sermon illustration. Um, one day we were walking along the beach with Bubba, and no, that is not a CMT dating show. Um, uh, we were, for my brother's uh, bachelor party, we were out on, on the beach, and we were walking around at night looking at the stars. It was such a clear night, and everyone saw the stars. Wow, that's amazing. Look at the stars. Look at the clarity. And we, want, we, we came back, and we were kind of sharing what we were thinking about. And Bubba's response was, God. I see God. It was so humbling because all of us wanted to be technical and scientific and Bubba was just overwhelmed with the view of God made the heavens. God made the stars. If you are pure at heart, you will see God. You will see God when you wake up, when you go to sleep. You will see him in every flower, in every bird, in every animal. You will see his image on every person who you face every day. That is the purity of heart. That is the sight that only the Holy Spirit can bring. And that is how we respond to the beauty of creation, to the wonder of who God is. Because we see God, we can be peacemakers. We can be peaceful. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
The children of God are ambassadors of the Prince of Peace. He's redeeming people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's ushering in a kingdom of peace with a gospel of peace. We do not have a gospel of conquest or violence. We do not bring people to Christ by the end of a sword or by flying a plane into buildings. We are ambassadors of the king. We get to be about the business of our father, ushering in a kingdom of peace, to be people of peace, to be peacemakers. We don't concern ourselves with vengeance. Concern ourselves with shalom. The Hebrew concept of shalom, um, we have weakened our words. We weaken a lot of words. I think peace is one of those words that we weaken. Um, I wasn't around in the 70s, but you guys killed the word peace. Um, and it just took all the, the, the depth out of what shalom is. Shalom in the Hebrew concept is perfect order and tranquility. It is the God of the universe has perfectly ordered things. And my life can have peace because God orders all things and God directs my steps and God will provide for me and my hope is in him. That is peace. And we are to be peacemakers. When we proclaim our gospel, we proclaim that God who orders and controls and holds all things together. We are to be ambassadors, the prince of peace. And we get to be about our father's business. And because we're about our father's business and because we're ambassadors of peace, that means everything's going to go great for us, right? That means the world is going to love us because we're merciful and we're pure and we're peaceful. No. The world hates us because we're merciful and pure and peaceful. That is so contradictory, isn't it? This isn't anything new. We saw this back in Psalm 1. There are two ways. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the wicked scheme and they scheme against God's anointed. Jesus told us very clearly in John 15, if you turn with me, how they're going to feel about us. John 15, verse 18. Jesus doesn't mince words and neither should we. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. They hate us. We were in good company. They hated Jesus. Jesus was the most merciful, loving, peaceful, pure person who ever walked on two legs and they killed him. 
What do you expect they're going to do to us? If you stand for righteousness, the world will hate you. Even when you act merciful. Even when your motives are pure. Even when you are peaceful. I think it's also important to remember this being 9-11. That we don't mistake the tragedies, the attacks that happen on our nation as Christian persecution. Now, yes, the United States stands for Christian ideals. But we can't mistake the responses of a nation and the issues of a nation with the responses of a believer. Because in America, we like to confuse nationalism with righteousness. That the things of America always align with the righteousness of God. Sometimes the world is just evil the sake of being evil. And we are not Americans first and Christians second. We are followers of Christ first. We happen to live in a great nation that has a lot of great freedoms. But many times we see attacks on our Christian, or excuse me, American way of life as attacks on on Christianity. No, the attacks on Christianity are a lot worse. The hatred for the things of God are a lot worse. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, persecution looks a little bit different because when you're persecuted for your ideals, it's one thing. But when you're persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, that's a whole different thing. I know what real persecution looks like. Um, I want to read an account. And, you know, uh, we are very insulated from it in our country. Uh, But throughout the history of the church, people have been persecuted and tortured and killed for using Jesus' name. That is Christian persecution. There are so many accounts. I was trying to find one to use this morning, and I could have looked for weeks. There are so many, and so many going on. So much so that um, uh, there's a organization called Voice of of the Martyrs, and easy enough to remember, they have a website, it's persecution.com. I was looking through their stories. This is just the last couple months. Their their accounts of persecution in martyrs, they come from Laos, Yemen, India, Sudan, Russia, Pakistan, Mexico, China, Cuba, Niger, Colombia, Nigeria, Somalia, Sierra Leone, North Korea, Uganda, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Vietnam, Syria, Kenya, Turkey, India, Tanzania, Nepal, Egypt. I could keep going and going and going. And the sad truth is right now, more Christians than ever in history are being persecuted for their faith and dying with the last name on their lips being Jesus. That's what Christian persecution looks like. So I want to read this one example that just, it just jumped out to me. So in Bangladesh in 1997, most of us were around for that. There's a man, his name is uh, Mira Jirali. This is the account of his life and his church in the face of persecution. The 30 Christian families stood in front of their in front of the mosque surrounded by 500 Muslims. You'd better leave Christianity and become Muslim again. 
the crowd yelled. If you do, we will help you. If not, we will beat you. Mira Jirali and his family stood with the others. We were all new converts from Islam, which makes them really angry. He says, second generation Christians do not upset them as much. And on that morning, every believer, including women and children, had to stand before the Muslim leaders for four hours while each family was questioned. When Mira's turn came to stand before the court, he said, in your religion, there is no salvation. There is no hope for going to heaven. I am Jesus and now I am whole. Now Jesus has forgiven my sins and I have hope for heaven. Following the hearing, all of the Christian families were forbidden to go get water from the village well. From that day on, they had to walk and carry their water more than a mile every day. Then the villagers accused Mira and several others of stealing water. The police beat me and kicked me and put me in prison for 30 days. Is a quotation now. I was tied to the back of another Christian man. We were beaten for four days, then locked in a cell with 60 Muslim prisoners. In that cell, the Muslim prisoners were sympathetic. It is better that you are Christians, they told Mira. It is a good life. Muslims are not at peace. They are always fighting each other. Mira's land was confiscated by the village's Muslim leader, and even though Mira's wife was expecting a baby. Members of his family had been beaten several times. When they walk through the village, people throw mud at them. The Christians have also been attacked in their little house church. Even though they're all new believers, they are not shaken by this heart treatment, harsh treatment. Listen to how Mira responds. We give thanks to God that these things cannot destroy our spirit. Jesus told us that we are only here for a few days. We have eternal life and will stay with him in heaven. He will take care of all of this. There are countless stories like that. But yet, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of those accounts, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. The more martyrs they kill, the more people they persecute, the more are being drawn to Christ. The ambassadors for Christ are spreading mercy and peace in the midst of violent persecution. And it is radical in the midst of intense hate. Because when the gospel is proclaimed, persecution will come. But like Mira and his family, we can rejoice in what the Lord is doing. We can proclaim the good news or we can believe the lies of the world. Proclamation leads to persecution. I want to show you something uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you turn there with me. This passage is probably the, the hallmark verse, verse of, uh, excuse me, passage of Christian apologetics. What does apologetics mean? Just means a defense of the faith. So when Peter tells us to defend the faith, look at what context he's telling us to do that. First Peter chapter three, we're going to start at verse 13. Very interesting that when Christian scholars get around and they talk about defending the faith, they like to talk about the intellectual part of it. But Peter 
gives us the context for which apologetics or Christian defense comes from. 1 Peter 3.13 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Defending of the faith comes in the opposition of the faith. Peter knew about suffering. He was crucified just like Christ. The early apostles knew about suffering. Except for John, they were all martyred. But yet, Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus knew his fate was coming. And what does he tell us in verse 11 back in Matthew 5? Blessed are you when others revile you. Means abusively criticize you. Blessed are you when they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. They slander you falsely on my account. And even a step further, rejoice. Verse 12 will act as our conclusion this morning. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they will persecute me they will persecute you because we rejoice in what God values. We rejoice in what God rewards, not the world. The world rewards those who go along with the world. If you keep quiet, you march in line, love what, what we love, we'll give you earthly reward. Jesus is saying, no, your reward is in heaven because you're going to suffer like I suffered. You're going to face persecution like I faced. We can thank God. We can rejoice that we don't see that persecution in our nation today. Some do. A lot of people will. And when you are bold, when you proclaim the truth of the gospel, you will face that. People will hate you for it because they hated your Savior. I love the language of Jesus. It is declaratory. I mean, it is it is impending that ambassadors for Christ, my followers, shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons. They shall receive rewards, excuse me, rewards in heaven. That is the identity of the believer. That is the life of the ambassador. To be merciful in the midst of a world that doesn't know mercy, to be pure in the midst of a world that's filthy, to be peaceful in the midst of a world that's angry, to face persecution the way our Savior did, knowing that our Savior is the one who sent His Spirit to guide, protect, and preserve us, and that our reward is in heaven and not on earth. Let's pray. Lord, these words are so true and so piercing, yet they defy human wisdom.
How can we even understand what it looks like to follow in your footsteps, to take up our cross? How can we face persecution? Not on our own. We try to face this life and the things of this world on our own. We will end up like this world. But Lord, you have overcome the world. You are more merciful than we could ever imagine toward us. You are the one who were pure and never saw corruption and never sinned. Yet you so mercifully chose to give that nature to us. You came peaceably and you will come back with a kingdom of peace. We are called to be peaceful for a short time. We are only here a few days. But our reward is in heaven. Our kingdom is yours. Our hope is yours. We pray in Jesus' name that that would become evident to everyone here and everyone we encounter. We are loved by you. You are holy in the hope and salvation of the world is only found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.